It's Tuesday, September 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Hidden Gems, Abby Mallon. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. We've got we got a bunch of things to get to, which is which is always good considering that it's not earnings season. But uh, we got to start with the big news of the day, and that is the fact that Toys R Us, which is the largest toy chain in the United States, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And we were talking about this earlier this morning. Not a surprise. Not a surprise in the slightest. This is um, about more than 20 retailers have already filed for bankruptcy since the beginning of 2017. And I think this is just um, sort of a sign of the times, honestly. I'm wondering if, I mean, it is a sign of the times, and I get that. Although part of me, and maybe it's my age here, but part of me is is a little amazed slash impressed that Toys R Us has made it this long, that they have survived to this point for this long. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think previously they were sort of thought of as this category killer because they had a huge specialty store with low prices and they sort of squeezed those independent shops. But now we're seeing the flip side. So, like the Amazons, the Walmarts, the Targets are sort of squeezing Toys R Us. Um, And I think they also had a pretty wide selection with a depth of product. So, they were thought of as like the last place to get the hot toy right before Christmas. It was sort of an advantage for them. And they also had a pretty good track record of identifying hits on toys well before their rivals. So, it was sort of a combination of things, but we've seen that deteriorate over time. And they have fended off competition in the past. And and primarily what I'm thinking of is in the late 90s with the dot-com explosion, uh, there was a company called eToys, which was uh, essentially the Amazon for toys. Because back then, Amazon was really just it was overwhelmingly books and music. Right. And eToys comes in, and people are like, "Oh my goodness!" And eToys was one of those IPOs. If if eToys went public today and had the IPO that they had back then, we would just be scratching our heads because I'm I think eToys went public at twenty. And closed the opening day at something like seventy-five or something like like it was some insane valuation for eToys and uh, the uh, I'm not going to go through the history of eToys, but uh, the way that ended up was Toys R Us ended up buying eToys right. for essentially a ham sandwich. <laughs> Um, so, so where are we now in terms of where this business goes from here? Because the the chairman and CEO was very quick to come out and put as a positive a spin on this as you can when you're when you're announcing bankruptcy protection because we're heading into the holiday season. This this really should be the great three to four months for this business. And he came out and said, oh, this is the beginning of a new era for us and I want to let everyone know we're still going to be open through this. I don't know. I mean, I I have not hesitated in the past to go to Toys R Us when I've been in the neighborhood of one. I don't know. I just on a gut level, I look at this now and I think I'm not sure I want to do this. Yeah, I mean, I think so. They were purchased for six point six billion in two thousand five by KKR Bain and a real estate investment group called Vornado Realty Trust, and. They experienced growth for a couple of years. They actually filed for an IPO in 2010, and then um, the finance system or the situation sort of weakened, so they pulled back from that. And I think we've seen it with a lot of private equity deals that these companies are pretty leveraged, and so they haven't had a ton of um, 
capital to reinvest and sort of keep up with their competitors. And so, a lot of the critics have said that they're really slow to get into e-commerce and they've been slow to compete with Amazon and things like that. And I definitely agree. I think making a smaller store base, which is what they've talked about, keeping everything open through Christmas and then sort of scaling back, makes sense. And I think um, another strategy they've been talking about is making a more like experience-based store. So having in-store play areas and things like that. Which, if you look at successful retailers and brick-and-mortar stores today, you think like Ulta. Um, so borrowing from that sort of like trying products before you buy them and having sort of the mix of high and low, I think it could be positive for Toys R Us, but it's definitely going to be harder than it would have been had they done this ten years ago. Yeah, it is for for every example of a private equity firm. And this is not a knock on you know the firms that you mentioned, but just for, for I feel like anytime there is a successful move by private equity, there are also moves like this. Examples that you can point to where you say, "Oh, maybe in hindsight, loading Toys R Us up with debt was not the best move here." Right, definitely. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool uh, From Mark Hubbard, listener number thirty-two in the UK. Whenever you talk about Under Armour and Nike, you never seem to mention Adidas with its new CEO and finger back on the fashion pulse. If Adidas is not the 800-pound gorilla in the room, it is definitely the 500-pound gorilla. First of all, I love that example. I love that we're not. I love that Mark is saying, "Look, let's not just classify all gorillas as 800 pounds. <laughs> 500-pound gorilla still, still, still relevant, still relevant, still right. kind of terrifying." Uh, and timely with uh, today's story in the Washington Post about how Adidas is now number two in the United States in sneaker sales, trailing only Nike and replacing the Jordan brand. Yeah, and and with the rise of Adidas, which five years ago Adidas seemed like it was in so much trouble, and it just shows you how, to Mark's point, new leadership. Um, and a new strategy can turn things around. And on the flip side, we've got both Nike and Under Armour this week getting downgrades from different analysts for different reasons. And so, as we shift from toy retail to athletic apparel, what stands out to you among these three things in terms of the rise of Adidas, the downgrade of Nike, which appears to be focused very much on their basketball line of products, and Under Armour's, which in some ways is is a more dire downgrade. Yeah. So just going into that basketball point a little bit, basketball footwear sales declined twenty percent this year, and this is the category's second decline over year or second year of decline. Um, Nike declined in the mid single digits, with the Jordan brand lost a third of their sales. Under Armour was down about half, but Adidas basketball has grown by more than 40%. So I think part of this is um, product innovation, part of this is just staying relevant. And I think a lot of this is just speaks to the fickleness of retail and consumers in general and how quickly things can change. And I think if you look at the reactions on Twitter to this, a lot of people were saying, we had no idea, we would have never seen this coming five years ago. And I think that's part of the challenge of investing in retail, honestly, is just things can change really quickly. And when you overlay with Nike the fact that a year ago, I think it was, they came out and said, we're getting out of the golf business. We're, we're shutting down our golf division completely right. because it's just not worth it to us. And so, 
Therefore, they're able to invest more in the real money makers, basketball, and that's what they took away that diversification. Yeah, probably regretting it now. <laughs> well, and it's you know, I, and again, I'm not. If you just look at the two stocks over the past year or so, Nike is basically flat. Under Armour's down about sixty percent, and so you because of Nike's size, because of their longer track record of success. Um, it's it's I think it's natural and and probably correct to look at them and say okay well they're not in the same amount of trouble as Under Armour. By the same token, I I am a little surprised by um, this you know second year in a row of a pretty substantial decline for basketball. I mean that's they they've done so well for so long. Yeah, and they've had you know and they've got the stars. Um, can we talk about Under Armour for a second because that downgrade. Was was that Wells Fargo downgraded? Yeah, Wells them? Fargo from price target of seventeen down to thirteen, <laughs> which is pretty dramatic. As an Under Armour shareholder, I'm just yeah. That um, one hurts. <laughs> you know what? It it doesn't hurt any more than the, the previous you know twelve months have hurt. But right. but that when I look at that one, uh, that downgrade was not about one particular part of Under Armour's business. That was about this overall trend and saying, look, we think. That we're going to see an overall decline in athletic, athletic footwear, wear. athletic apparel. I mean, if that if that plays out for Under Armour, doesn't that stand to reason it plays out as well, not just for Nike but for Lululemon Athletica? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a difference in the brand. First, Lulu focuses more on um, women's wear than either of those two brands do. I think it's a little bit more fashion than athletic, so people wear that like out around to brunch whatever you're doing whereas Under Armour and um, Nike have been more sort of primarily focused in that athletic space but I mean it's definitely something to watch and consider for sure so when uh, Under Armour and Nike saw what Lululemon was doing a couple of years ago and the success that Lululemon had with in particular yoga pants right and they looked at that and said, "You know what? You know what we can make? We can make yoga pants too." And right. it was thought at the time uh, by a number of people, including a bunch of people here at the Motley Fool, that uh, this might be trouble for Lululemon because Nike and Under Armour have good brands, and they, if they can sell quality yoga pants for a third less the price, right. then then who's going to go pay a hundred dollars at Lululemon? That sort of thing. Where do you see this landscape now? I think it's a little bit different when you talk about those three companies in particular, just in terms of their distribution cycles. So, Lulu focuses on their own stores primarily, and it's a lot of um, they have built a brand sort of around that brick and mortar space. Where I think Nike and Under Armour have a long history and a strong reliance on those sort of third-party distributors, which we've seen struggle in the past year with a lot of those um, store closures. I was going to say, like, like Sports Authority going like out of business? Authority. Right, exactly. So, I think um, they're a little bit more exposed on that end, which is something to consider, for sure. Where We'll just close up on these. Nike, Under Armour, do you look at either of those stocks today and say, you know what, particularly in the case of Under Armour, this is a screaming buy right now, or do you, or as someone who studies this space, do you look at Under Armour and think, you know what, I, I want to see them put up a couple of good quarters before before I look to buy shares of this company? I think it. I mean, it's really dependent on your portfolio and when your exposure is and things like that. I definitely wouldn't sell Under Armour at this price. I think 
you know, at this point, you might as well ride it out because, yikes. That's my point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There are, there are absolutely those moments you're just like, well, it's already fallen to this point. So, you know, what what's a few dollars more? Right, right. Our Twitter handle is at MarketFoolery from at the Royal Blue. That's, that's a much better Twitter handle than mine. From at the Royal Blue, a question. General Motors executives selling off shares. The auto market is in its cycle, but GM is riding high. Should this be watched or worried? Um, we can take this question away from General I know the question's about General Motors, but we can broaden this to any. I think this person gets at a very a relevant question that a lot of investors have, which is, I own shares of this company, or I'm thinking about buying shares of this company, and the latest headline I've seen is that the CEO or some high-ranking executive at that company is selling right. off shares. Should I be worried? Yeah. I think um, it's definitely something to watch. I think it's something to consider, but I would caution anyone from using this as your sole metric for buying and selling. I think there are a lot of reasons that people buy and sell shares. So, um, just in this case, it's Dan- Daniel Amen, who's actually the president, not CEO, of GM that's been selling shares. So, he sold 32% of his shares on September 13th, but he still owns about 7.2 million of common stock in GM. So, I mean, it's down from his previous 9.6 million, but I still think that's. Um, I feel well aligned with him with that holding, even though it's lesser than what he had before. It's not a situation like uh, the ongoing soap opera that is Equifax, where executives are selling shares and not disclosing the fact that they have yet another data breach. Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel that that position change has caused enough concern in my head. But again, that's sort of a personal. Judgment call, I would say. Well, and the other thing, and that's that's interesting to note about the the president because knowing nothing about the executive being referred to in this question, um, my in the moment reaction was there's a decent chance this is an automatic plan in, right. the, in the same way that you know, when, your position size has grown too big for your portfolio right definitely. and and you know I always think of Bill Gates just sort of setting on autopilot just his you know like clockwork I don't know if it was once a quarter or whatever Bill Gates ended right. up doing with his Microsoft stock to just be like no I'm just gonna set this on a schedule and it's gonna sell off when it sells off yeah I think in terms of not only that but also in terms of his total comp for 2016. 45% of his comp came from stock options. And I mean, he was obviously well paid, but you have to consider that people have colleges or vacations or homes or whatever that they want to do. So um, it's still a lot of money. You're saying executives are people too with lives? They are people too. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll end right there. Abby Mallon, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>